0: Hi everybody. Morning. Welcome to Redemption Arcadia. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the person you will see most often on Sunday morning, but we do have other people who fill in occasionally. We have one guy who's in residency that we're training and uh, he preaches a lot. That's Sean. He's the the young, louder guy. I'm the older, more quiet, but not as calm guy. Anyway, The reason I bring that up is because uh, it has something to do with this exciting announcement about Life Connection Church. That's exciting, isn't it? Life Connection becoming a redemption church. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yay, God. Um, But as I've gotten to know Aaron over the last couple of years, uh, one of the reasons I'm excited is because Aaron's part of this package. He is He is just a wonderful guy and I can't wait for you guys to get to know him. Uh, Not that he'll spend a lot of time over here, he has his own church to lead. Um, but I I was first in line to get him to commit to preaching here uh, once the uh, announcement was made, and so I believe that the date we settled on will be the first day of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, he'll be here preaching uh, at at, uh, Arcadia, so I can't wait for uh, the rest of you who don't know him to meet him and get to know him, he's a wonderful guy, wife, five kids, five, all little, little, so, and he doesn't know if he's done yet either, so this is... He's into church growth, man, I'm telling you, so. All right, turn to Romans chapter 6. That's where we are. This is big. We only have three verses today, but there is so much uh, to cover, and the reason is because of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is huge. Usually when we think about Romans, those of us that are familiar with this stuff, when we hear the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, we think of chapter 3, we think of chapter 8, we think of chapter 12. Those are kind of the primary ones that we we tend to go to. But I will tell you chapter 6 is is absolutely huge. And and so we're going to spend six weeks in chapter 6. That's a lot uh, for only 22 or 23 verses. Uh, But the reason is because what Paul covers here, this idea of uh, death and life, death and life, dying and living, dying and living, Um, the death of the old man and the resurrected Christ. This is so important uh, that that we need to spend a lot of time on it. And it may sound at times like Paul is repeating himself, and in some ways he is. But very often what he's also doing is he's bringing a little bit of a nuance to what he's saying so that it's like, you know, the prism. You just change it a little bit and you can see different uh, truths in what Paul is trying to say. So that's why we're going to spend so much time I would say this about Romans chapter 6. It is not the cream-filled center of Christianity, but rather it is the compressed core of Christianity. There is just so much here. And chapter 6, if you'll recall, is is really written within the context of chapter 5 verses 20 and 21. So I want to repeat this again because we have to keep that in mind. Literary context, uh, rhetorical context is so important. And here's what Paul says at the end of chapter 5 prior to to what he says in 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And if you remember, uh, uh, Sean uh, talked about how uh, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, humanity existed in sin, but without the law pointing out our sin. So we had the fall of Adam... And everybody by uh, the imputation of Adam's sin to them, including us, everybody is now born into sin. But it wasn't until years and years and years later that we actually had the law come along to point out to us that we were, that we were wounded, that we were injured, that we were dead, that we were, that we were separated from God. And when the law came, it had this amazing effect of, of, of not curbing our sin, but actually increasing our sin. It increased our trespass. So now the law came in and incre- and to increase the trespass. And then Paul says this. This is one of the most radical statements in Christianity. And it separates Christianity from any other worldview, philosophy, religion, whatever you want to call it. This is what separates us. As, uh, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No matter what we do in sin, there is always more grace. Grace is bigger, better, quantifiably better, qualifiably better. Every which way you can imagine, it's bigger and better than sin. As as sin increases, grace just abounds all the more. That's because God loves us and because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And then verse 21, and so as sin reigned in death, grace, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That those of us who are now in Christ and no longer in Adam, we have this righteousness, this justified standing before God because of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we started last week, chapter 6, with that in mind, And and those first four verses, verses 1 through 4, last week were also heavy and comprehensive. And so let me just remind you of those so that we know where we are today as we get started in today's paragraph. Here's what Paul says starting chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So so Paul realizes that his radical statement at the end of verse 20 in chapter 5 is going to raise all kinds of questions by everybody. By Christians, non-Christians, whoever. Somebody hears that the more we sin, the more God's grace reigns in our lives. We're naturally logically, even piously going to think, well, I might as well just go ahead and sin more if grace is going to reign and grace is going to abound all the more. And in fact, we pointed out last week, some people will even say, I'm doing my Christian duty to sin more because then there's more grace for everybody, including me. We actually think that way. We actually want to justify our sin that way. Paul knows we're going to go there. It's such a radical statement. And some people would even say, it's dangerous to teach that because then people are going to sin. But it's the truth. As sin increases, grace reigns, abounds, all the more. But Paul says, now, if you're going to think that way, though, and you're going to use that as a way to justify your sin, if you're going to engage in, as we would call today, antinomianism, licentiousness, libertinism, Paul says, no. You don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel if that's automatically where you go. And he answers his own question in verse 2 by saying, by no means. The Greek words, me genoito, the strongest negation in the Greek language. And we said last week, literally, it's inconceivable that somebody who really understands grace would say that. And then he explains, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And he just starts this back and forth refrain, death, life, death, life all the way through chapter 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And here's the important thing to understand about the word baptism in this particular case. We, we, we unpacked this a lot more last week, but I just want you to know, he's not talking about the, the, the sacrament of water baptism there, although that's a very important sacrament and we engage in it here and we're excited to do that. And we believe in it and we know it's important. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is being baptized into an entirely new life, an entirely new realm, an entirely new dimension that you cannot go back from. You, you cannot go back into this old life because you have died with Christ in sin. And so now you live with him in the resurrected life, can't go back to the death anymore. If you're in Christ, you are alive and you are alive to God and you are living in your purpose now. And so that's the baptism. You've been severed from the old and you've been recreated, born again for the new. And so he continues, verse 4, "...we were buried therefore..." That's the severing of the old life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so now, what he does for the next several verses, especially this next paragraph, And this next paragraph is verses 5 through 11 is he explains what this new life is. What it means to be in this new life. This unique life. This novel life. This life that by definition of that word new, newness, says that you can't have this life in any way, shape, or form apart from Jesus Christ in your life. No other life can have this newness of life unless it is in Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. And so this is the paragraph now that we look at, verses 5 through 11, over the next two weeks. And verse 5 kind of gives us the, 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 the thesis statement of this paragraph. He says, we've died to Christ. We've been raised with Him to new life also. And then verses seven, 6 and 7 explain the death. And then verses 8 through 11, which are next week, explain the life. And so I just want to warn you today, right now, I, I understand that this is, this is going to be some rough stuff today. Because we're going to pound for 35 minutes on the death. We're going to pound on that. The old man, the body of sin. We're, we're, we're going to talk about that, what that looks like and what that means, and we're just going to pound on it. And then maybe the last five minutes we'll, we'll, we'll lift up and rejoice and celebrate the new life, okay? So it'll be a little imbalanced. But, but you're here already. So endure for this Sunday because next Sunday it'll be 35 minutes of celebration in life and only five minutes of pounding on you about death, okay? So we'll reverse it next week. So you're getting the worst of it out of the way this week. But it's so important to lay this foundation that we have died with him and what has died and how does that work? So important to lay that foundation because you can't have a resurrection without first having death. The death must precede it. And in this paragraph, Paul talks in such Uh, such terms of absolutes, polarities, and totalities. And the reason is because we have to understand that sin is so absolute in our lives. It is not that sin just taints us. It's not like sin is just a part of who we are, but we can quarantine it and we can segment it. No, 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 no. Paul is going to say, you are sin. I am sin. That is who we are. That's our identity. Therefore, a death must occur. But just as we're going to be united with Christ in his death, we are also going to be united in his, in his resurrected life. The atonement comes first and then we get resurrection. And in that resurrection, we get the life that God intended for us. And, and of course, in that new life, we gain things like perspective and understanding. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that we, we actually have the mind of Christ. So we have this this absolute reality now with which we can look at the world and ourselves and relationships and know who God is. We see things differently now. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and there's, new, there's this new understanding in our lives about wisdom and foolishness. I lived for 27 years of my life completely separated from Christ. Not just separated from Christ, but separated from anything having to do with church or Bible. I was 27 years old. I knew exactly one Bible word. It was Jesus, and I thought it was a cuss word. That's all I knew. And I believed desperately that my wisdom was wonderful and this wisdom of God was foolishness. I was 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. And then, the, and then the resurrected Christ came and saved me and the Holy Spirit began to live in my life and I started struggling with that. And I started to learn and, and, and He started to knock down my pride. God did. And, and, and I began to realize over time that my wisdom really is foolishness to God and that the wisdom of God that I once thought was foolishness, I now began to embrace as the true wisdom. And that's what we get in this resurrected life. We begin to have a, have a real understanding of what wisdom and foolishness are and so verse five tells us we're with Jesus baptized with him into this death we're also united with him and that word united becomes very important we're united with him in life and so today we talk about the death and that makes our question for today this and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time in how are we united with Jesus in his death how are we united with Jesus in his death and Paul gives us the quick explanation in verse 6. There's three things he says there in verse 6. And that's what we'll, 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 we'll discuss this morning. Number one, our old self, literally in the Greek, it's the old man. And, and, and when Paul writes the old man, he's referring to Adam. He's referring to the Adam in us. Before you can be in Christ, you have to be in something else. We were in Adam. The only two things you can be in, Adam or Christ. So the old man, the old self, the old Adam, has been crucified with Christ. Jesus took that to the cross. That's the first thing. The old man is gone. Number two, that brings the body of sin to nothing. We'll spend most of our time on that, the the idea of the body of sin, what that means. And then number three, we are no longer, therefore, slaves to sin. So three things. Death of the old man, crucified, the body of sin has been brought to nothing and then that means that we are, we are free from enslavement to sin. So our old self, our old man, who we were in Adam. As I said, we had to be in something else before we are in Christ. We were in Adam. We walked in Adam. We lived in Adam. But, but in order to be in Christ, in life and in resurrection, we first have to be united with him in death. And that word united is the, is the Greek word symphatos, which literally means, it's a, it's a botanical term that means grown together. We, we are synthesized. We are integrated. We are, we are absolutely grown together. A couple of houses ago, uh, Jackie and I, uh, the, our family was in uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of land, but there was a lot of landscaping involved in this house. And we had a lot of plants that I was not familiar with. When I was growing up, we had oleanders and oleanders. And that was about it. But this house had everything. Had everything. Plants I'd never seen before. And there were a lot of them. And a lot of these plants would, would actually grow together. And I'd be out there trying to do yard work and everything. And I was always fascinated when these plants would start to grow together. How strong they were. When they grew together, number one. But number two, how it was almost impossible to determine where one plant started and where the other plant ended. They were synthesized. They were grown together. They were completely integrated. Well, the life of a Christ follower is also about integration. What we also need to know is that the life in Adam is also about integration. And this is a challenge to us, especially in the 20th, I say 20th because I lived in that century as well, but also in the 21st century. This is a challenge to us today because we have been taught and we believe that we can live lives of segmentation, that we can segment our different selves, our different lives out. We think we can do that. We think we can parcel out our flaws and our character and our sin. That, that we actually, we're not one self, but we're many selves. And in some ways that's true depending on what situation you're in. But you still carry that sin with you. And if you're in Christ, you always carry Christ with you no matter where you go. You cannot seg- segment your sin or Christ we are symphatas In death, we are symphatas. In life, we are symphatas In both Adam and in Christ. So we carry our sin nature everywhere with us. It's, it's like this. There, there's a dragon within us. There's a, there's a guy named Bill Perkins. He wrote this, I think it's a great poem. It's mostly great because it's really short, but, and I'm not a big poetry guy, but I love this poem because of what it says. And if you understand poetry, it's metaphoric, all that stuff. I'm acting like I understand poetry. Just listen to the poem. It's really good. Okay? Bill Perkins, the dragon. I found a dragon on my step. Small and agile. Please, stay a while. Every day we'd take a walk, master and pet. Why the cold sweat? And then I saw he held the leash tall and vile i've got no file i found a dragon on my step false hearted foe who will never let go that's our sin nature that's the old man and it's not even that there is a dragon within us it's that we are the dragon that's who we are i'm going to talk a lot about sin today But it's never going to be about the things we do. It's going to be about who we are. Because who we are emanates, what we do emanates from who we are. And James understands this too. In James chapter 1, he writes this. And he's saying the exact same thing. Chapter 1 verses 13 through 15, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And here's why he says it. This is the ultimate in in people saying whatever is out there that's what's evil. I'm not the problem. James is saying no. Whether you think it's God or someone else or your circumstances or Satan, whatever it is, this temptation is not coming from out there. It's coming from within says let no one say when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when when he is lured and enticed by his own desire we are tempted by ourselves we are tempted by who we are. We are tempted by our own sin nature. We are tempted by this old man. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So even James gets this. This is a, a theme throughout Scripture. This is not just Paul who claims that the problem is not necessarily what we do, but who we are. The problem is ourself. The problem is within us. And I know, I get it. I said the same thing. It's not fair that Adam did this to us. If I was there in the garden with Adam, I would have said, no, 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 don't do that. I, I, I don't want to be tainted by your, I don't want to be corrupted by your mistake. Get Eve out of here. She's a problem too, man. I, I, I understand. It's not fair that, 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 that he did this to us. But that doesn't change the fact that that's what's happened. We can whine and complain and moan about it all we want. And believe me, I have. I have a PhD in whining and complaining. Just ask my wife. We can whine and complain all we want about it, but it doesn't change the reality that that's exactly who we are. Sin. We were born with it. It's our old man. But through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, this old man has been stuck up on that cross and has died. And therefore, number two, this body of sin has been brought to nothing. The body of sin in verse 6 refers to the absolute rule, the absolute reign that sin has over our lives because of Adam's original sin in us. And again, I know. I know the argument. I have the same arguments years years ago. But but wait, 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 wait. I'm not a bad person. I do good things. Therefore, I must be a good person. I know. I know that way of thinking. I get it. I wrote the check for the donation, I helped somebody, I gave up my Saturday morning, whatever it is, I do good things, I'm a good person, I let somebody take cuts in front of me on the 101, whatever it is, that'll get me into heaven. I'm a good person because of that, and I know this is so hard to get our arms around us. The problem is that most of us think that there are two kinds of people in the world, good people and bad people, and of course we think, well, I'm one of the good people, You know that's called the self-serving bias we just automatically put us in the good in the good category and all the bad people then we have to describe this way well they are the serial killers and the tyrants and the rapists and people who go to Las Vegas on the weekend look at me I'm in church on Sunday I'm not in Las Vegas I'm a good person now we're right that there are two categories good and bad but we're wrong about who's in those categories there's only one person in the good category and that's Jesus the bad category is all of us everyone everyone else and the fact is that when you and i do good things apart from god it's not good in god's eyes if it's apart from god because he knows our hearts and he knows why in fact we're doing those things when we do those things it's us trying to be our own savior i'm a good person look what i did therefore i deserve to go to heaven That's you with a Messiah complex. That's me with a Messiah complex. That's us saying, I'm going to be my own Savior. It's us trying to spruce up our reputation. Can't have a resume anymore without all kinds of volunteer work on it. It's us practicing image management. It's us being able to say that we're a good person by what we do. But we need to remember, Scripture tells us no one is good except God. It's, It's us doing it ultimately for a self-serving motivation which in and of itself is inherently sinful there is no such thing i know this is hard we hate this there is no such thing as a purely altruistic act apart from jesus christ in our lives that's not me talking that's god that's what he says in his word and we either believe it or we don't And, and this is the challenge one of the problems is this is a challenge living in a world that doesn't take sin as seriously as it should Sin is absolute in its wickedness and corruption. The body of sin is a body where sin reigns, it rules. Sin doesn't just have a voice in our life, it controls our life. It touches everything. There are no corners of our lives that that are not touched by sin. We are motivated by sin, we're ruled by sin, it runs in our veins, it courses in our blood. And again, here, let me clear this up, I'm not talking about our behavior. I'm talking about who we are. Our behavior merely points at the sin inside of us. It's it's like this, In, in the communication discipline, we say this all the time. A word is not reality. A word merely represents the reality. Never think that a word is real, it's just representing or symbolizing the reality that is. Well, it's the same thing in us. Our behavior, and I know, Our behavior is bad, offensive. It hurts people. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying though is that the sin is deeper than our behavior. The sin is us. It's the old man. It's our old Adamic selves. We have to get our arms around that because Sean said it two weeks ago. Sin is our DNA. That's essentially what it is. It's our DNA. Uh, Now, I'm going to enter a time now (laughs) where I'm going to explain some stuff, and this is going to be rugged for the next 10 or 12 minutes, I can tell you. And, and, and the way this came together, I was not sure I wanted to present it. I, I also knew that I would, I would probably end up after the sermon just go in the back room or the basement and hide from everybody because I didn't want to hear about it because this is rough stuff. But the way it came together, and then I checked it out with people, people I trust who understand these things, I said, this is what I'm going to say. And they said, yep, that's right. Probably because I'm saying it and they aren't. But yep, it's right. needs to be said. It's hard, hard stuff. Okay, so just be prepared for this. We're going to talk about what the sin nature looks like and how it sometimes gets manifested and how we try to cover it up. Uh, Years ago, I'm in the communication discipline like I'm in theology Years ago, it became a, a, a paradigm, a way to work on conflict resolution, and sometimes even in counseling and therapy and psychology, that kind of thing, but certainly in conflict resolution, it became the paradigm to sit down with a person and say, listen, you, you are a wonderful, wonderful person. You're a good person. You're a respectable person. You're a good of person of good morals and good character. You are wonderful, but your behavior is a problem. We said what we need to do is we need to separate a person's behavior from who they are. Right? We've been doing this for decades now. Never go to somebody and say you are a problem. You say your behavior is a problem. So we separate who you are from your behavior and I get it I get it people don't want to hear that they are bad it's a little easier to hear that their behavior may not be so wonderful but that they're wonderful good people so they don't want to hear that their behavior is bad they don't want to hear about the dragon that's inside of them they don't want to hear about their sin nature and so it might even make it easier for people to hear criticism but the truth is who you are drives your behavior Even Jesus says this in in Mark chapter 7. He says, look, what's coming out of you is coming from your heart. It's unclean from your heart. It is is ridiculous to separate behavior from who we are because then we get to walk around and and not deal with the reality and the core of sin. Caleb Succo, who's an author and and a pastor, he says it this way. Behavior is always secondary to the condition of the heart. And Mark Deaver, another pastor and author, says it this way. Our main problem is not our particular sins. It's not our behavior. Our main problem is that every person born into this world has a problem of standing before God. Our main problem is with who we are. Our main problem is that we are in Adam. So this idea of trying to separate who we are from our behavior is ridiculously simplistic and ultimately ineffective because it refuses to allow us to get at truth and to go deeper with people. And this approach is actually a a way of preventing us from going deep with a person. We are allowed to talk about behavior only but never who you really are. And that produces shallowness. We live in a shallow culture. Well, guess what? It's getting even shallower. Now now we can't even question behavior. The last 10, 12, 15 years, we've gone from don't ever talk about the person, talk about the behavior. Now we've gone to this realm where we say we can't even talk about the behavior. And there's confirmation coming from every corner about this. Uh, And and I would recommend this book. Here's one one of the places where I'm getting this, and I'm going to explain a little of this. In his book, Sex and the Eye World, Dale Keene makes the case that the new generation of I world people, what's an I world person? It's all of us. And it's a double entendre. I world meaning me, 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 me. Bunch of me monsters. I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. But it's also been driven by the fact that we live in this digitally uh, digital technology world. That all communication has been digitized and it's faster and we have social media. So... The iWorld is also a reference to Apple and what they've done. Okay? So he says that the new generation of iWorld people have determined that fulfillment in life, let me stop there, everybody's goal is to be fulfilled in life. That's what we're all pursuing. That's what we're all seeking, right? We just want to be fulfilled. Well, people in the iWorld generation have determined that fulfillment in life comes from freedom from three things. It doesn't come in Christianity. It doesn't come in philosophy. It doesn't come in worldview. It doesn't come from Oprah. It doesn't come from Dr. Phil. It comes from from trying to achieve freedom from these three things. And here they are. Number one, freedom from nature. We are free from nature. And this is actually a polemic directly against Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Where Genesis tells us, God made man... In his own image and likeness, male and female, he created them. And the iWorld generation looks at that and says, balderdash. I am not restricted by physiology, neurology, or biology. I can be whoever I want. And so our culture is moving towards a culture of androgyny and genderlessness because we want to be free from nature. And that's manifested in other ways, but that's the best example that I can show you of that. So freedom from nature. Number two, freedom from authority. Because the only true authority in the world today is is who? Me. And you. The only authority in my life is going to be me, my experience, my understanding, and that's it. I determine everything. So freedom from authority, freedom from the authority of God, freedom from the authority of a text, freedom from the authority of a philosophy or a worldview or a television show or whatever it is, freedom from Rush, freedom from Bill O'Reilly, freedom from everything. Freedom from any kind of person or thing that sets themselves up as an authority. So freedom from authority. And then the third thing, freedom from want. Freedom from want. If I have a desire it must be fulfilled i have every right to expect that any desire i have whatever it is whatever my mind and heart can conjure whatever it is i have a right to have that desire that want fulfilled and the sooner the better no matter what nothing can get in the way so we're trying to achieve fulfillment in freedom from three things freedom from nature freedom from authority and freedom from want. And then Kean goes on to demonstrate that in the pursuit of these freedoms, taboos have been put in place that might obstruct the pursuit and we are to never therefore engage in any of these taboos anywhere at any time. I won't give you all the taboos because you only need to know one taboo to really get it. And here's the first taboo. One may not criticize someone else's life choices or behavior. This is how we've decided, apart from Christ, to deal with our Sin nature, this body of sin. So now, it's not just that the mores of culture restrict us from talking about who a person is at their core. Now we can't even talk about their behavior. We're not allowed. That means we can't talk about anything. There's nothing to talk about. We are now the most shallow generation that has ever existed. You and I, all of us in this room, doesn't matter what your age is, we are shallow, which is so ironic Because we all walk around talking about how much we value relationship and transparency and authenticity and and community. Uh, The reality is is that we're just deceivers and liars because we're sinners deceiving ourselves. That's the body of sin and it must be brought to nothing. Uh, Mark Driscoll's got a new book coming out in a couple of weeks and and there's been uh, ways of of reading pre-release chapters and stuff and I've been reading it and I think it's going to be a great book, what I've read so far. Has been awesome. Here's what he says in, in the book. One of the things he says. Today, the only sin is to call something sin. The only sin. It's the only way you can be a sinner is to call something sin. So the only sin is to speak truth to other people. So just walk around lying. Here you go. What I'm doing right now in the eyes of the world is the worst possible sin anybody could engage in and I deserve to go straight to hell that's it this is the world that we live in that's our life today and that's what Paul is trying to get at in these couple of verses he wants us to live in truth and in grace the truth of who we were in Adam, and the grace of who we are in Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. And he says, listen, the way we deal with sin is, is we try to cover it up and we try to put a band-aid on it and we try to get clever and talk about how we need freedom from nature and freedom from authority and freedom from want. And, and, and the taboo is that you can't question anybody's behavior. We try to cover up sin. He says, no, you can't cover up sin. You can't.' If he was alive today, he might say it this way. You can't put lipstick on a pig. He says, you have to slaughter the pig. The old man has to die. The body of sin has to be nullified. Keller, Tim Keller was asked just a couple of weeks ago, what's the best suggestion you can give the millennial generation? And I love this. I think this is great because millennials love Tim Keller. They love him. So listen up. Here's what he said. You are the generation most afraid of real community because you perceive that real community inevitably limits freedom and choice. Get over your fear. So here's what's resulting from the current mores of culture. We're getting shallower and shallower and shallower. We can't speak truth to anybody. And I know some of you right now are going, I'll fix his wagon. I'll speak truth to him just as soon as this service is over. Okay, but I get to go second. We claim we want deep community. Listen, I'm not saying that we should be jerks when we do this, obviously. You know who speaks truth to my life? better than anybody it's my wife Jackie and she does it in a way that helps me to see what a wretch I am without ever feeling like a wretch but thank God we have the kind of relationship where she can speak truth to me about who I really am and and it is funny because she rarely talks about my behavior she talks about my nature Because she knows that she can get that nature thing corrected my behavior is gonna follow and she always does it with patience and grace because she's in Christ we claim we want this but but we really here's what most people want they just want to be affirmed they just want to be told how wonderful they are that's what that's what we think real community is so Dennis and I go out for coffee And we sit there drinking a latte for an hour going, you're wonderful, Dennis. And Dennis goes, you're wonderful, Frank. (laughs) No, you're more wonderful. No, you're more wonderful. And then I go away and I say, hey, great community today with Dennis. We're both wonderful. We're just in denial. And Paul says, here you go. Paul says that was crucified with Christ so that our body of sin was brought to nothing. And brought to nothing means to be made ineffective in light of a great power. So Augustine, the great 4th, 5th century theologian and church father father explains it this way. Before the fall, he says Adam was what he called passe picare. He was able to sin. He hadn't sinned before the fall, but he was able to. He didn't have to sin, but he was certainly able to sin. He was passe picare. After the fall, Adam, and by virtue of his sin being imputed to us, us as well, We are now non-passe, non-pacare. We are not able to not sin. We are not able not to sin. Again, here's another communication uh, illustration. In the communication discipline, we say, and I know these are double negatives and that drives some of you crazy. If we have any English uh, teachers in here, I get that. It drives me crazy too. But it's the only way we can really explain it. In communication, we say it this way. You are not able to not communicate. If you're breathing... You're communicating. If there's somebody else around you, you're communicating. You may not be saying anything. You might be just sitting there with a blank expression on your face. You are still communicating because somebody is receiving your communication. I, I, I don't mean to pick on her, but there's, there's Amy right there. My friend Amy. She's communicating to me right now. Right now, she's telling me non-verbally, why are you, t- why are you calling me out in front of all these people? Okay, She just wants to sit there. She's... She, 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 but she's communicating. All of you are communicating to me. I'm getting 200 messages at once. It is not possible to not communicate. That was our sin nature. It, was not, it is not possible to not sin. After the resurrected Christ invades our life. We are then passe non pecari. We are able not to sin. We still do sin because that old nature ruthlessly hangs on and we battle it, but we are able in Christ not to sin. We now have the power not to sin. We don't have to, but we do sometimes. And then in our glorified state, we, are finally, uh, we finally get to be what we truly yearn for, which is non passe pecari. We are not able to sin. But right now we're in that third realm. Passe, uh, 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 passe non picare. We are able not to sin by the power of Christ. Temptation still appeals to us. There is a struggle. I get it. But it means that we also no longer seek as our first flinch to serve sin. We were slaves to sin. Totally controlled by sin in our old edemic identity. We would seek to serve sin always. We didn't think of it that way. We didn't think that, that we were serving our sin. We thought like the dragon... The sin was serving us, that it was serving our pleasures, our ego, our pride, our gratification. But in fact, we were serving sin. Augustine says it this way, the sin we seek for our pleasure becomes the sin that punishes us by us becoming enslaved to it. Another way to say it is this, we get to sin, but eventually sin gets us. But this body of sin is now void in its absolute power over us. We still sin, but we don't have to. And that means, number three, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Now, we all say we hate slavery, right? We hate slavery in any form, we hate it. Yet the most insipid form of slavery, which is our very souls to sin, that's the one that I would argue we don't take seriously enough. But because we are united with Christ, not just in His death, but in His resurrection, we are no longer enslaved to sin. There has to be a death before there is a resurrection. It is impossible to be resurrected if a death has not occurred. And so Jesus bids every one of us, and if you're not in Christ today, you need to hear this, He bids us to come to Him and die. Die first. And then live in His resurrection. We don't get the fluff and the muffins and the cupcakes of the resurrection without first getting the death, the crucifixion. So it's two parts. United with Christ in death, united with Christ in resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when the gospel invades our lives, we carry Christ with us everywhere. That's what it means to be united with Christ in His resurrection. We can't segment that. Just like our sin nature is not able to be segmented. It's, it's John chapter 15 where, where Jesus teaches that He is the vine and we are the branches. And as the branches, we must abide in Him. We are symphatas, abiding in him, united with him, synthesized with him, integrated with him. And and Paul would say once you're intertwined with Jesus, how could you go on sinning that grace might increase? It doesn't make any sense. That's why he says it's inconceivable. It, It is even also a picture of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son? He wanders off with great purpose of getting away. If we're in Christ, we can do that. But because we are symphatos, united with Christ, we wander away, but but Christ does not wander away along with us. He's there when we turn around waiting to greet us, waiting to have a party. And the only person who's upset is the older brother in our life. the, The moralistic, legalistic, religious person. That's what being united with Christ means. We died with Him. We're raised with Him. We live with Him in newness of life. Romans 6, 7. We have died with Christ and so we are set free from sin. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, you are now clothed in Christ. It's Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me who lives. That's what it means to be united with Christ in death and in life. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Sean will come up and lead us into our time of response. God, we thank you that even even when you challenge us, when you shred us by your word, that you put us back together again because we are united with you. So God, we thank you for that great gift. God, God, help us to understand that we can live for God. We can live for you because we've been united with you. We are synthesized with you. God, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.